Let's pray. Lord, we add to that song, that, that's a prayer. We've been, we've been praying to you in song. And we ask now, Lord, that you would indeed come and cleanse us. We need the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from all sin. We need your presence. We need you to move into our lives in fresh ways. We need you to speak to us, Lord. Open our ears, open our hearts. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Bless the preaching of your word. Bless this man in his weakness. Bless all who hear. For you are our God, our King, our Savior. And we're so thankful. We're so glad to be here in your presence together today. Be honored among us, we ask in Jesus' name. In his book, Bowling Alone, Robert Putnam writes these words. Before October 29, 1997, John Lambert and Andy Boschma knew each other only through their local bowling league in Michigan. Lambert, 64-year-old retired employee of the University of Michigan Hospital, had been on a kidney transplant waiting list for three years when Boshma, a 33-year-old accountant, uh, learned casually of Lambert's need and unexpectedly offered to donate one of his own kidneys. Andy saw something in me that others didn't, remembers Lambert. When we were in the hospital, Andy said to me, John, I really like you and have a lot of respect for you. I wouldn't hesitate to do this all over again. I got choked up. Bashma returned the feeling. I obviously feel a kinship. I cared about him before, but now I'm really rooting for him. The photograph in the Ann Arbor News reveals that in addition to their differences in profession and generation, Bashma is white and Lambert is African American. Unfortunately, says Putnam, friendships like these are increasingly rare in our world today. C.S. Lewis saw this coming 50 years ago. He wrote these words, To the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, ignores it. Well, the Bible does not ignore friendship, so we are not going to ignore it either. We're in the middle of a focus this month that we're calling Project Connect. And it's a a simple project to just help us connect with each other daily, to encourage one another in the things of God, and to pray for each other daily. And uh, this is the third of three sermons along that theme. So far, we've said... We were created to connect. We've said, we've talked about how the doctrine of the Trinity, that three-in-one community, shapes our relationships. And today, we're going to talk about this. And this is perhaps my favorite title of all, Humans Need Friends. (laughs) Humans Need Friends. That's pretty simple. It seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? But I have to be honest and say to you that if I'm honest with myself, and then I can be honest with you, 
frankly, I have lived most of my life as if that were not true. And uh, God is doing some things in my life to change my mind and to change my life in regard to these things. Humans need friends. What we're going to do today is to take a look at a friendship in the Bible, the classic friendship of David and Jonathan. You find it in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 20 and uh, a few chapters before and after that. And we're going to glean some things from that friendship. I think we all have things that, that we will find helpful from this as we look at this friendship, but especially the men. I especially want to speak to the men today. I, I think as men we need models, solid models of friendship. And here we have these two men, David and Jonathan. And if you read their stories in the Bible, these guys are men. I mean, they are real men. And they're deep friends. So, you know, I want to be a real man, so I need deep friends too, right? I think we all do, whether we're male or female. So let's tune into this and, and see what God wants to give us through uh, this part of his word. Uh, you know, in David's life, um, we have this beautiful example of human friendship. I want to give you the setting. You may be familiar with it. You may not. The setting is that Saul is the king of Israel. He's the first king. And he is a man on a mission. He is relentless about this mission. And his mission is, he doesn't like David. And he doesn't just want to make David's life miserable. He wants to kill David. That's his mission, and he's relentless. In all, King Saul will make six attempts on David's life. David was often you know, ducking to avoid a spear, <laughs> hiding from Saul's armies who wanted to kill him. Maybe my favorite of all, one time David had to sneak out a back window in his house while his wife put a dummy in the bed to fool the death squad that Saul had sent you know, to kill David. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 19. So in the midst of this battle for David's life, there is an oasis of grace, and it's David's friendship with Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of King Saul. David is running for his life, breathless, frightened, troubled. He meets up with Jonathan in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel. Despite all of David's accomplishments and popularity, he's very popular at this time, David is fighting a battle. And he's in trouble. And this is what he says to Jonathan in verse 3 of chapter 20 of 1 Samuel. He says, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there's only a step between me and death. Now Jonathan is frankly finding it difficult to believe that his own father is actually trying to kill David. He's really struggling to accept that. Is that true? But he knows that David is his friend. And even in the midst of his confusion and his uncertainty, Jonathan does what friends do for each other. In verse 4, this is how he responds to David. He says, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. That's the language of friendship, isn't it? Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. Well, David is in the midst of a battle. This is war. It's not only a war for his life, it's also a war for his soul, his heart, his spirit. 
Yes, Saul is literally trying to kill him, but the circumstances of this life of running and hiding and always looking over your shoulder and always feeling that death is breathing down your neck, well, that threatens to kill David's spirit. It breeds despair. In chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, we we see that David is God's anointed one. Um, That means that God has called David to be the next king. David has been chosen. He didn't seek it. God chose him to be the next king. But he has to be patient. Saul is the king. David has to wait on God's timing. And in the midst of this, as the king, the king over the whole land is trying to chase him down and kill him, David is struggling. He can't allow his heart to grow cold and hard and bitter and vengeful. He can't allow fear to overwhelm him. So what does God do for David? In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of all this craziness, in the midst of one of the fiercest battles of David's life, God, interestingly, does not remove David from that battle. That's what I want. When I'm in a battle, I'm like, Lord, would you please remove me from this battle? And God rarely does that. You've probably had the same experience. He does not remove David from the battle. Instead, he sends a friend into the battle to say, you are not alone. Not only am I the Lord with you, but I'm sending a friend in to be alongside you who will fight for you right there with you, alongside you. And his name is Jonathan. It's an unexpected friendship, isn't it? The son of the king who is trying to kill the next king. (laughs) Very unlikely friendship. But this is still God's pattern for for the Christian life. If you are a follower of Jesus... You are in a battle. Have you thought of that lately? Jesus himself said, in the world you will have trouble. It doesn't get much clearer than that. He said, yes, I will overcome the world. And he proved that by his resurrection from the dead, that there's no enemy stronger than Jesus Christ, whom we follow. But he said to his followers, in the world you will have trouble. Trouble. And the rest of the New Testament affirms that, agrees with that. So what does God do for us in the midst of the battle? Well, certainly he gives us the Holy Spirit, this holy friend who is with us on the inside of our lives, who speaks God's hope and peace and life to us and always whispers to us about Jesus. But God also provides for us in the battle by giving us friends, on the outside of our lives, like Jonathan. So I think in these verses, we we have a picture of the body of Christ, of of Christian community, of Christ-centered friendships. The friendship between David and Jonathan was really a rare thing in the ancient world. But in the church, the body of Christ, the people of God, the New Testament model for Christian community. What David and Jonathan shared is now normative. In other words, we can look at their friendship and say, what does a normal Christian friendship look like? What do Christian friends do for one another? So what can we glean from this 
friendship for our lives today as, as we follow Jesus. And I think the first thing is that, that friends, Christian friends, are rooted in God. Friends are rooted in God. There's a phrase that, that rounds off the two major sections of this story, like bookends, uh, and it occurs in verse 23 and again in verse 42 of 1 Samuel 20. And the phrase is this, the Lord is witness between you and me. Right there in the middle is the Lord. The Lord is witness between you and me. Uh, David and Jonathan uh, frequently talk of the Lord. They frequently ask for the Lord's presence in their friendship. This is a friendship where both friends have said, this is not about me, this is not about you, this is not about us. This friendship is about the Lord, that he is here with us. And this is frankly amazing, that ego is not the issue. Who is first? Who gets the credit or the recognition or the honor? That's not the issue. And it could have been the main issue that divided those friends very easily. But it's not the issue. And that's why Jonathan does not display any jealousy or envy. Understand what's happening here. Jonathan is the son of the king. He is the son of of the reigning king. In other words, he should be the next king. He's the heir to the throne. He's the crown prince. But look what happens. Look what he does. Look at how he sees himself in relation to David. If you look at chapter 18, verse 4 of 1 Samuel, it says, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic, and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. What is Jonathan giving to David? Well, he's giving him some weaponry. Remember, David's running for his life. <laughs> and David needs some weapons. And Jonathan says, here, take mine. You can bet they were the best in the land. He's the son of the king. What else? What else does Jonathan give to David? He gives him his robe. A robe is not weaponry. Not much help in a battle. He gives him his robe. Why? The robe was a symbol of the kingdom. This is the robe of the crown prince. And he gives it to David. What is Jonathan doing? He's giving him the kingdom. He's saying, the kingdom that should come to me really belongs to you. I know it. The Lord has said it. I believe that. And I will serve you. You will be my king one day. Gives him the robe. That's amazing. It's hard for us to understand this. We don't have kings and queens here in America. We don't have that as part of our tradition. I think for us, the the closest equivalent would be of a presidential candidate who, who clearly has the inside track on the presidency. I mean, He's way ahead in the polls. There's nobody even close. There's no question he is going to win that election in a landslide, and he will be the next president. But he turns to his closest rival, who's way behind him, and he says, look, I I know I'm leading in the polls. I know that I should be the next president. But frankly, you are better qualified. You deserve to be the next president. So I'm going to bow out 
I'm going to put all my support behind you and I'm going to tell everybody to vote for you. How likely is that? (laughs) Has that ever happened in our history? No. (laughs) It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible unless we place Christ at the center of our friendships. David and Jonathan were so intent on and so passionate about doing God's will that they came to the place where it wasn't about their egos or their comfort or their positions or their agenda. They demonstrate what C.S. Lewis claimed was the essence of a friendship, a common quest, a shared vision, a united mission. This is what Lewis wrote. He said, friendship must be about something, even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. The common quest or vision unites friends. You will not find the warrior, the poet, or the Christian by staring into his eyes as if he were your mistress. Better fight beside him. Read with him. Argue with him. Pray with him. In other words, how do you make lifelong, life-changing friendships? Well, here's what you don't do. You don't set out to make friends. Kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? You don't set out to make friends. You set out to love and trust and obey the Lord. You determine to make Jesus first in your life, to make him your savior, your rock, your king, your refuge. And so you set out on a mission with Jesus where you say, Lord, I will follow you. Help me to follow you. I don't want to drag you around with me. I'm not leading the way. You're leading the way. I will follow you. And Lord, you have the best vision and quest anywhere. You're my Savior. You're my Lord. So my life has got to be all about you and about doing your will. Not my will, but your will. Even if I have to suffer and die in the process, you're worth it. And as you grasp God's vision and mission and quest that you find for your life in the Bible, you're going to be drawn to other fellow questers for Jesus. And your souls end up being knit together as one. You don't set out to do that. It just happens as you're on mission, on a quest, the same vision. But if you start out by saying, I'm lonely and I need to find some friends you're always going to be disappointed because you'll be putting people at the center and people always disappoint. We're all fallen. We're all so frail, so broken and sinful. And you'll end up without Jesus really being Lord because you're trying to make other people to to fill the holes in your life and be your God and your refuge and your provider. And it never works. It's just very disappointing. Only Jesus can do that. So friendship, deep, lasting, life-changing friendship, depends on a common vision, a common quest. Look, that's the whole point of Tolkien's books and movies that were made about the book, just hugely popular. You know, The Lord of the Rings, right? The Fellowship of the Ring, the first book, the first movie. What is it that binds those little hobbits together? Sam and Frodo and Merry and Pippin. 
What is it? Is it, is it the fellowship of the hobbits? No, <laughs> it's the fellowship of the ring. It's that common quest. What are we going to do with this ring? It's a quest that's outside of themselves. It's very important. Even in a small group, if your goal is just to make friends or have a good time, your small group will become stale. It's inevitable. If your goal in coming to church on Sunday mornings is just to see your friends or to preserve fond memories of better days in a more pristine past, your faith will grow old and stale. The key is to be seeking Jesus, because God is exciting. God is exciting. He's the creator. (laughs) There's no one like him. And if we seek an exciting God, if we pursue Christ, if we're following him, well, then our lives are going to be captivated, captured by a vision for the glory of God in the earth. And we'll realize we have this privilege of sharing the good news that a Savior has come, that Jesus is his name. And he can save anybody. He can change any life. That's how big he is, how strong he is, how exciting this is. And what do you know? You'll find others who are captured by the same quest. And suddenly you'll find yourself, without having set out to, without intending to, you'll find yourself fighting, praying, battling, right alongside each other. And you'll never have to worry about having friends. Friends are rooted in God. Here's the second thing I think we can glean from this friendship of David and Jonathan. Friends let friends in. Friends let friends in. Uh, The friendship between David and Jonathan actually begins in chapter 18. After David had been anointed to be the next king, uh, and then he went on to, to fight and defeat the, the giant warrior Goliath. Well, we read these words, chapter 18, verse 1. Jonathan became one in spirit with David. Literally translated, it reads, spirit bound with spirit. Isn't that a great phrase? Jonathan became spirit bound with spirit of David. Another way to say this is that they got beneath the surface. They moved from the superficial to the deep. And as they grew in friendship, they were able to share their deepest hopes and dreams and fears. I mean, that's exactly what David was doing at the beginning of chapter 20, the verse that we read, where he said to Jonathan, there's only a step between me and death. I mean, David is being pretty vulnerable there. He's just, he's opening it up. There's just a step between me and death. In the midst of his trouble, yes, he's crying out to the Lord, but he also needs a brother. He needs a human friend. So he tells Jonathan, I can't do this alone. I'm not going to make it alone. I can't handle this by myself. I'm confused. I'm scared. I'm about to die. I feel like death is just right around the corner for me. I need you. I need your help. So I think friends are vulnerable like that. They don't hide and pretend and make like they're stronger than they really are. They realize that they cannot fight alone. They need fellow warriors to stand with them in the battle. 
During the first Gulf War, there was an essay written called In the Face of Death, What Makes a Soldier Disregard Instinct? In other words, what would compel a soldier to defy the fear of dying and be ready to sacrifice his life on the spot for the cause? Well, according to this essay, the main motivator, as they talked with soldiers, the main motivator was simply this. You do it for one another in your squad, your team, your company. When you get down to zero hours, said one soldier, and it's you and almost certain death, it's the team that sends you over the ridge line. So let's transfer that word instinct and use a biblical term, sinful nature or the flesh. In other words, what will compel us as followers of Jesus, to ignore the flesh, to defy the sinful nature, right? And to fight the battles we're facing and actually lay down our lives. Well, certainly the Word of God and the rich resources of the Holy Spirit and a desire to bring glory to God, all those things will compel us. But it is also the team. It's all the one another's that we find in the New Testament. It's it's the body of Christ. It's the church family that sends us over the ridgeline. We do it for one another. If you don't realize your deep need for brothers and sisters in Christ to walk with you through life, not just for the good times, but to share in the toughest times of your life, well, then you may have one of two spiritual problems. The first problem might be that you don't realize you're in a battle. It's easy to miss that. It's easy to forget that and not realize that you're in a battle, a battle for your heart, your soul, your mind, your life. And you're oblivious to the battle that is raging within you and the battle that is raging all around you. And that's a tragedy because it means you're losing the battle. And you don't even know it. A second problem could be that you're in the battle and you're, you're trying to fight, but frankly, you're just not fighting it God's way. You're fighting it like the Lone Ranger. You remember the Lone Ranger? He was one of my heroes when I was a kid. What do we know about the Lone Ranger? Nothing. <laughs> this man is alienated. He's alienated from himself. He's alienated from other men. He has no name. He shares nothing about himself. He wears a mask. He needs no one. That's not God's way to live. But that's been a model for many of us. God's way to live, to fight, is in community. And I know, I know, there are so many reasons not to let people into your life. And we've talked about that so far in this series. So many reasons not to let people in. Disappointment, rejection, hurt. Columnist Ellen Goodman once wrote that we are a nation that keeps moving away. Initially, we moved away from the city out west to the frontier. Today, we just move away from each other. The frontier is within. And we move away. We move away from our spouse. 
We move away from our church. We move away from our friends. Whenever we don't know how to resolve something, we move away. The gospel calls us to stop moving away and to start moving in, to start digging in, start loving, start forgiving, start accepting. That's hard work, to love, to forgive, to accept. It's hard work. It costs you. You remember that it cost Jesus his life. It cost him his life at the cross to love you, to love me, to forgive you, to forgive me, to accept us as his own. It cost him his life. That's the only way we would ever make it into the family of God. And he did that. It cost him. It costs us too. But without those kind of friendships where there's love, where there's forgiveness, where there's acceptance, people who will battle beside us, people who will share our burdens, without them we're weak and we're defenseless. It's like we've been cut off from the herd and we are prey for the predators. Friends are rooted in God. Friends let friends in. Here's a third thing that we see in this friendship of David and Jonathan. Friends are loyal. Friends are loyal. I want you to notice what Bible scholars call the covenantal language of this friendship of David and Jonathan. We read, Jonathan made a covenant with David in chapter 18, verse 3. We read, David says, Show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. Chapter 20, verse 8. And Jonathan replies, Show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live. That's covenantal language. The key word is the Hebrew word hesed, which is translated throughout the Old Testament as this fiercely loyal love of the Lord. It's translated as the loving kindness or the steadfast love of the Lord. It means that the Lord makes a covenant with his people. He makes a commitment to us and he will not cancel it. He has sealed it forever in blood. The blood that you see with all the animals in the Old Testament fulfilled in the blood of that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ, sealed, the covenant sealed in his blood. So this, my friends, is God's Fiercely loyal, unbroken, unbreakable love. And that's the kind of love, that's the kind of loyalty, that's the kind of mercy that is at the heart of this friendship with David and Jonathan. They use the covenantal language and they do it on purpose. That's how deep this goes for them. It's taken seriously by these two friends. Proverbs 17, verse 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Isn't that the truth? In other words, friends won't let you down just because your life gets complicated. Jonathan, put yourself in Jonathan's sandals, really. Jonathan is willing to be David's friend even though it is risky, costly, and inconvenient. Jonathan, too, had his father throw a spear at him. Fortunately, he missed. Saul was never very good at throwing spears. He always missed. 
That's why David and Jonathan survived. But I'm telling you, that's pretty, that's, that's harsh. Your father is throwing a spear at you. But that did not deter him. David's life, I think it's fair to say, David's life and David's problems were messy, really messy. But rather than back away and be comfortable and say, this is a little too much for me, Jonathan willingly walked into the mess of David's life. Later on, when Jonathan was dead, Jonathan was killed in battle. Saul also killed in battle. David had survived. And David was now king, and he was secure. When he was secure in his rule over the land, over the kingdom of Israel, David went searching through the whole land. And this is what he was looking for. This is what he was asking. 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Wow. Think about this. You're in the courtroom with David. He's seated on the throne. And he says, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? And everybody in the court thinks they know how he's going to finish that sentence. Because if there's anyone left of the house of Saul, we're strapping on our swords. Because you don't leave people who were in the house of your enemy, you don't leave them out there. You have to eliminate them, or they may stir up rebellion against the king. So they're just, they're, they're going for their swords, man. They're strapping on their swords. We'll take care of any that are left in the household of Saul. You got it. But he, he goes on to surprise them and he says, to whom I can show kindness. There's that Hesed word again, that Hebrew word, that, that love, that mercy that never fails. You're going to show mercy to the house of Saul, your enemy? Are you kidding me? This is the mercy of God. (laughs) Love for the enemy. And he says, I want to do this for the sake of Jonathan, my loyal friend who died for me. It just blows your mind. Friends are loyal even when it's inconvenient and when it's not smart. Not very smart. That's what everybody's thinking when David says this. Not very smart. This is the movement of God's Spirit. So full of mercy. Where would I be? Where would you be if God had not moved toward us in mercy? We who were his enemies. So when was the last time someone told you, no matter what, I'm here for you, and I'll do whatever you need to get through this battle? That's not usually what happens, unfortunately. Perhaps our biggest fear is that people will see the real us. The real messiness of our life will be exposed. And then they'll bolt. They'll head for the door. Look, as followers of Christ, we believe in sin, don't we? That's why we need a Savior. We believe in sin. We know it's real. We know that it has damaged and ruined our own lives. We know that it called for a Savior to come in and forgive. We know that. We know that there are messes in life, that there's not a person walking around who doesn't have a mess somewhere in their lives because of sin. Sin breaks us. 
So we know that. We know that there are messes in our own lives and in everybody we know. Everyone is carrying a mess around with them of some kind. Pride, lust, greed, unbelief, baggage from the past, fear about the future. But friends, don't bolt when the mess comes to light. Friends, demonstrate this loyalty, this mercy, this covenantal love, which reflects the Lord's love for his people. So what kind of friend are you to others? It's easy to think about, well, what kind of friends are people being toward me? Let's turn that around. Let's each one of us just turn that right around. And I need to think about what kind of friend am I to other people? Are you passionately pursuing Christ? Is that your mission? Is that your quest? Even above finding friends, are you vulnerable? Do you allow others to share in your struggles with you? Are you willing to pursue that kind of spirit-bound-with-spirit friendship, that kind of loyalty, even when friendships are messy, inconvenient, and costly? You know, we see that in David and Jonathan. We see that in that covenant friendship they establish with the Lord in the midst. You know, that just points us ahead. You know, David and Jonathan's friendship is not a standalone friendship. It really points us ahead to someone who came and walked into the mess and didn't have to. And his name is Jesus. And he came from the perfection and the beauty of heaven. He left that behind. And he came to this broken world, you know, to walk right into the mess and the brokenness of my life and your life. And this is why they called him. They meant it as an insult, but it was high praise. We know it. This is why they called him the friend of sinners. He was always hanging around with the wrong people. (laughs) He always walked wherever... There was brokenness. Wherever people knew they needed a righteousness they did not have and could never have. And Jesus said, I will give you that righteousness that is not your own. It comes from heaven. It comes from God. Follow me and you'll find forgiveness. Follow me and you'll have a righteousness not your own. Jesus, friend of sinners, aren't you glad? Where would I be if Jesus were not the friend of sinners? Where would you be if Jesus were not the friend of sinners? If Jesus is the friend of sinners, then we can be the friend of sinners too. It takes one to know one. I hope you're participating in Project Connect this month as best you can. And I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're benefiting from it. I am. I've I've been surprised. It's been so encouraging to me to be talking with my call buddies these first two weeks. Um, And I hope you're beginning to discover, or maybe to rediscover in some new needed ways, that you're not alone. That you need friends, and that God has provided friends for you in this church family. But what about longer term, when this month is over, and Project Connect is over? Well, here at New Life Church, we have what we call home groups. What are home groups? Well, they're circles of friends who follow Jesus together. It's pretty much what they are. Circles of friends who follow Jesus together. 
And I hope you're in one. I want to encourage you to be in one. If you're not, I just want to urge you to join one or maybe to start one. And we can help you with that. You don't have to do that alone. We can help you with that. Just contact any elder, any staff person, or the church office, and we'll help you with that. I mention it because your elders and I believe that home groups hold the best hope for our church staying connected over the long haul. And here are some reasons why. And I want to give props and thanks to my buddy Scott Ashman uh, just for a great summary of why home groups. So thank you, Scott. First, they're biblical. You know, we've looked at, in a previous sermon, how Acts 2 shows the church from the very start meeting both at the temple and from house to house. Second, almost every church that experiences growth in community has done it through a small group structure of some kind. Third, home groups are an excellent way for people to grow in grace and in knowing Jesus and for new leaders to emerge as they use and develop their spiritual gifts. And then fourth, home groups provide hospitality. Study after study in multicultural ministry, and we are a multicultural church. Study after study shows that it's hospitality. Hospitality is the key element for bridging cultural and racial barriers. In other words, when we break bread together, we break barriers together. That's powerful. And I just want to close by encouraging you, you know, if if you're thinking that all of this is optional to your spiritual life, that it's like icing on the cake and maybe you don't need the icing, you're mistaken about that. These things, these are things that God takes so seriously. Jesus did not come just to save you and get you to heaven all by your lonesome. No, he had a community in mind when he saved you. He came to create a new redeemed faith community that will gather around his throne from every tribe, nation, and tongue to praise him, to celebrate him and his great salvation. So I say, let's start right here, right now to do that, to develop a heart for that community and for that celebration. I hope that our Project Connect focus this month is is making you more aware of these issues for your own life and for our church family. And perhaps one of the first takeaways for you is the need to be praying about it. I think everything needs to be rooted in prayer, bathed in prayer. So let's do that. We are going to be having a series, seven-week series of Wednesday night prayer meetings during the Lenten season. We'll start this Wednesday night, the 18th. Seven o'clock, down in the fellowship hall. I just want to invite you to come. Come and join us to pray. Let us seek the face of the one who has called us to himself in Christ and has called us to be together, to be together in Christ. And that is a beautiful thing. Amen? Amen. As we come to the end of the service, um, I want you to listen to a song And it may be familiar to you. But I just encourage you to listen to it and to kind of quietly make it the prayer of your own heart. And then the worship team is going to be coming up. 
And, and they're going to call us into singing right along with this song and, and just be ready to do that when they, when they bring us in. Uh, this is a song that really is meant to be sung as a, a, a family, a church family. It's a song that we really sing to one another, and I think you'll see that. It's called, I Need You to Survive. Somebody tell them I need you. I need you. 